Well, hey, once again, good morning. I'm so glad uh, to be here and so glad y'all are here or else I'd be talking to an empty room and that would be weird. Okay, so if you will do me a favor and pull out your sermon outline, you should have gotten it as you came in. One thing you'll note on your sermon outline this morning is that this is the 24th week of a uh, sermon series (laughs) that we're going through called Unfolding Grace. Now, if you're new to uh, our church, and maybe even especially if this is your first time here, you probably hate hearing that, right? Like 24th week, you know, you might be thinking, am I going to be like lost for the rest of this service? Like for the next half an hour, am I just going to be wondering like, like, does everybody else know this information? And I'm like, he's building on something like, is there information that everyone else has that I don't? Because, you know, honestly, no one wants to be the odd man out. Nobody wants to be the one person who is out in an inside joke. You know, everybody laughs at the punchline, but you walk in late and you're like, okay, can you recap that again? Like, just review it. Just, I mean, how long was it? Uh, Because you just don't uh, get it. And so if that's how you feel, then don't stress out. I have good news for you this morning because this is actually a very good Sunday for anyone who is here for the very first time, really for at least three reasons. The first one is that one big purpose behind the whole sermon series, Unfolding Grace, is that so that no one would feel like the odd man out. Like when they open their Bible in in the unfolding grace series, we're doing an overview of the entire Bible to show how each part of your Bible fits in the overall redemptive narrative of God's great story of redemption. Like often you look at that book that is in your lap that is a thousand plus pages and you're like, okay, like where do I start? Like, where does this guy fit in the story? Is this one story? Is it one book? Is it 66 book? Is it two testaments? Like, what is the point of this? And so that's what we've been covering with Unfolding Grace. The second reason that this is a good Sunday uh, for newcomers is because we're actually wrapping up the Old Testament today. Like, Nehemiah is the last historical count account in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, we are going to look at some prophecies of the coming Messiah in Isaiah and Jeremiah, but we're done with the history of the Old Testament with this morning's message. And finally, another good reason that it's uh, good to be a newcomer this morning is if you've missed the last 23 weeks, uh, the reading that we're going to study this morning in the ninth chapter of Nehemiah gives us an inspired recap of the entire Old Testament. Like you could have skipped the last 23 sermons. Sorry, church, but you could have skipped them (laughs) because this morning, like the Holy Spirit speaking through Ezra in the book of Nehemiah gives us a recap of everything that has happened. Like it's kind of like when you in the olden days when you'd watch a TV show before you would binge a TV show. Now you watch 10 in a row. But when you would wait week to week, you would hear previously on And so this morning is a previously in uh, the Old Testament. And so if you have a copy of the Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you don't know where Nehemiah is, that's okay. Go to your table of contents at the beginning of your Bible and it will show you or look on your app. Uh, We are in the book of Nehemiah this morning in the Hebrew Scriptures. Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. 
because it's kind of one kind of historical time when the nation of Israel returns from exile under those two great leaders, one to build the temple and one to build the city. Last week, Pastor Michael spoke about the need to return and to rebuild which is exactly what the people of Israel were doing after their exile and what exactly what we need to do after COVID-19 and this pandemic. Like we need to return, like get back to normal, get back to life, return to church and rebuild, be part of what God is doing here. And so Nehemiah continues the theme of rebuilding. Like when he arrives in Jerusalem in 445 B.C., about 15 years after Ezra, he finds that the temple has truly been rebuilt, but it's surrounded by rubble. Like he gets there, and sure, the temple is there, and it looks okay, but you know what? Everywhere else just kind of looks like a bombed-out city. There's no houses, like no market. No one lives there. There's no wall of protection around the city. There's no true restoration, as was promised in Jeremiah 31. I mean, it's almost 100 years after Cyrus had made the decree for the Jews to return and rebuild the temple, and they still don't have a city that has been rebuilt. And so in the story, the first thing Nehemiah does is he gathers the people, he observes the problem, and then he rebuilds the wall. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. He rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem in record time. And if you've been in a church that has had a building campaign trying to raise money to build a church, you've probably gone through the book of Nehemiah, right? It's a great for a, for a stewardship study. It's great for a leadership study, you know. Uh, but really, I mean, when you think about what he did, he, he rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem in just under two months. But before he did that, he spent four months praying. He spent more than twice as much time praying before he even approached the king to be able to go to Jerusalem as he did to rebuild the wall. That's how it was done because he was praying and asking God to work a miracle. And so he rebuilds the walls and then he goes, begins the process of rebuilding the city and moving the people back into the city. And then finally, with the help of Ezra, who is still alive, and the Levites, he begins to rebuild the worship of the one true God. And in the chapters you'll be reading this week, chapters 8, 9, and 10, Nehemiah gathers the people the Jewish people, to hear the Scriptures read. And as the Word of God is read to them, they fall under deep conviction. Like some of them hearing the law of God for the very first time, they realize how deeply they have sinned against God and they begin to grieve deeply on both a national level and on a personal level for their sin. And then in chapter 9, we have what is the longest recorded prayer in the whole of the Bible. It's a prayer of confession of sin that reaches all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And that's where we're going to start in chapter uh, 9, verse 5, kind of midway into verse 5. This is the prayer. This is probably Ezra's praying at this point. That's what historically Jews believed what was happening here. Ezra leading the Levites begins to pray, Blessed be your glorious name. 
which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Meaning, as great as our worship can be, as great as our praise can be, like we're going to run out of breath and run out of words. God, you're just that glorious. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens and all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. God, you did all of this. And you know what? Those in heaven, the hosts of heaven, those angelic beings, they get it. Like they have the right response to what you have done. Like it all, guys, it all begins with God. This prayer of confession all begins with the fact that there is only one true God who is the maker and the sustainer of everything. And for this, He is rightly worshipped as the Creator. Like as a believer, if you're a Christian, you should read this and like there should be something going on in your heart where you're just still a little bit amazed. You're just a little bit astonished that the God who spoke everything into existence knows you, cares about you, knows your name, like gives heed to your prayers, hears you when you call upon Him. And so why does a prayer of confession start with creation? I think it's to remind us that we're accountable to God. Like God is the one who made us. God is the one who, in a sense, a very real sense, owns us. We are His. Like, do you recognize your own obligation to the one who made you and sustains you? Like He holds your very life in His hands. Like all of your days were written in a book before one of them came to be. God holds your very breath the number of your days in His hands. And so if you read on in the story of Genesis, the next thing in the story of Genesis after this, this prayer covers chapter 1 and 2 where everything is great, but then in chapter 3, everything goes wrong and it's our fault. Like mankind sins against God. We choose not to live under His Lordship. Like arrogantly, we think that we can... Forge, forge a better path than the one that God set for us. And then in the midst of judgment, God says this promise, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and he, the serpent, will bruise his heel. Like that's the first promise of a coming Messiah, that God is going to send a deliverer of some kind who will be born of a woman who will defeat Satan and in doing so himself will be greatly wounded. That's the promise, the fall and the promise, followed by, just a couple chapters later, by a flood and another promise. The world gets so bad because of their sin that God does a hard reset of planet Earth and then promises, makes a covenant with mankind that He won't flood the Earth again and destroy it in that way. And once again, points toward a coming deliverer, someone greater than Noah. Like you see in all of this that the Creator is not disengaged. He's not disinterested. This isn't the God of deism who created the world, put its laws in place, and just stepped back and let it spin and do its own thing. No, God is heavily involved. Ezra continues to pray in verse 7. It says that you are the Lord. 
the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And so we have here the story of Abraham. It fast forward to about 2,000 years ago where this pagan named Abram is not worshiping God, not pursuing God, but God calls him to himself and says, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to give you an offspring even though you're old. I'm going to give you a land even though you have none. And I'm going to make you a great nation and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. See, God has a purpose. Habakkuk 2.14 says He's going to fill the earth with the knowledge of His glory as the waters cover the sea. And Abraham is a key link in the promise made in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, and the fulfillment of that in Habakkuk 2.14, the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Verse 9, And you, Lord, saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you know that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And so once again, Ezra praying now fast forwards 500 years. It's 1500 years B.C. And God hears the cry of Israel in bondage and Egypt. He sees their hardship and he responds by sending them a deliverer. He sends them Moses. It says that the people of Egypt acted arrogantly. That phrase, acted arrogantly, is going to be repeated two more times in this prayer. And so just note that. It says, and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. So as Ezra prays, he's just saying, God, you did it all. Like you made everything. Everything we see is because of you. And God, you've been faithful. You called our father Abraham and made him a promise. And then in the midst of our bondage, you remembered your promise. You heard your people and you delivered them. Like Ezra prays and recounts the faithfulness of God. And we need to remember in our own prayers that God has a track record not just in the Bible, but in our lives of unbelievable faithfulness and deliverance. He still sees, He still hears, He still delivers His people when they cry out to Him. Like in fact, you're, you're still here. You're still alive. You're still drawing breath because He has sustained you to this very moment. Like He's giving you breath. He's allowing your heart to keep beating to hear this message. To hear a message about hope. 
Verse 12, it says, By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. Remember, God's not disinterested. He's not disengaged. He's actually present with the people of Egypt. Like I'm, I'm sorry, the people of Israel. Like His very shining glory is there among them, leading them and guiding them and protecting them. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them, and listen to how He describes the law of God, the Ten Commandments. You gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Like when you think about the law of God, do you think about it as right rules and true laws? Do you think of it as something that's good? But see, Ezra knows that the law wasn't for God. The law was for his people. In fact, the law of God, God gave them the law, not a, as a condition of his love, do this and I'll love you, but as confirmation of his love. Because they were already his, he gave them a law to live by, to guide them. It was for their good. Like the God's law is always for our protection. You know, as a dad and a grandpa, like one of the benefits of having a fence in my backyard is to keep my grandkids from running into my front yard. Because in my front yard, on the other side of it, this thing called the street, right? Like I have a fence in my backyard and will let my grandkids play in the backyard because they're safe back there. Like God, when he gives law, isn't trying to rob us of fun. He's trying to keep us safe. God's law is always, always, always for our protection. And it's also always for our provision. Like God's law creates a path that if we stay on that path, our lives will be better. Like if we just follow what God has said, your life will be better. And you may not think it is. You may be off that path and you may say, hey, it's pretty awesome. Give it time. Okay? It's not going to stay awesome. You know, I'll just tell you, I, you know, if you're off the path, I just wonder, how's that working out for you? Because it's not a good place to be. God gives His law, His commands, these right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments for our protection, for our provision, and because they point to a promise. In fact, they point to a person. They point to Jesus. The law of God, according to Galatians, is a tutor that leads us to Christ. As we see the law of God and realize how hard it is, how far we fall short of His standards, it shows us that we need something more than just a better set of rules. Like we need a new heart. Like we need more than just a second, you know, or third or fourth or fifth tablet of commandments. Like we need a rescuer. We need a Savior. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Like God is faithful to His promise. He's faithful to His people. Like God gives these people exactly what He had promised that He would give them. He blesses them in every way. They are actually in His very presence 
seeing the miraculous works of God, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously. The same Hebrew word used of the nation of Egypt, they acted arrogantly, is the same word here. Like Egypt acted arrogantly against the Jewish people, against the Hebrews. But the nation of Israel, they act arrogantly against God. I mean, which is worse? I mean, it seems like what these guys have done is far worse even than those slaveholders in Egypt. But they and our fathers acted arrogantly and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Like Ezra in his descriptive prayer doesn't want us to miss the point. I mean, these guys acted arrogantly, they stiffened their neck, they weren't mindful, meaning they weren't thankful, they weren't grateful, they weren't humbled by the, the miracles that they saw like God doing in their midst. They stiffened their neck, even to the point that they appointed a leader who could take them back to Egypt so they could be slaves again. From what you see here, it's clear that sin is not a us and them kind of a problem, is it? It's not an Egypt versus Israel kind of problem. It's not an insider versus outsider. It's not a we're the good guys and everybody outside the walls of our church are the bad guys. Sin is not an us and them problem. Sin is a all of us in this together problem. Like we're all sinners. Our hearts are deceitful. Left to ourselves, we all fall into the same category of hardening our heart and stiffening, stiffening our neck and closing our ears to the Word of God, even to the point where we're not even humbled by the fact that He shows us any level of grace. And then it says, but you are a God ready to forgive. You ought to underline that sentence in your Bible. But you are a God ready to forgive. Is that unexpected? I mean, it is for me. I mean, if I'm God and I'm writing this, like the Bible's a whole lot shorter, right? Like if I'm God and I'm writing this and this is how they respond, then it would say, but you are a God ready to judge sin, you are a God fierce in His anger. You are a God holy who will not forgive, who will not put up with this kind of crap. But that's exactly what's going on. I mean, that's, that's what should happen, but instead, what does it say? But you are a God ready. You get this idea that God is anxious. He's at the edge of His seat, just ready to respond in grace. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Guys, there are some things that I know to be true of God and when I am at a dark moment or I have failed, I remember that you are a God ready to forgive. You ought to memorize just that sentence. And ask God to bring it to your memory when you need it most. Even when they had made for themselves 
a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Once again, guys, if I'm God, that's where the story ends. Like I've delivered these people. They know who I am. And yet when Moses is receiving the law of God, they make a golden calf and say, this is the thing that brought you out of Egypt. Like it's over. Like they're a greasy spot in the wilderness at that point, right? But no, you are a God ready, anxious to forgive. I mean, look at it. Great blasphemies are met by God with great mercies. Like you cannot outsend the grace of God. I mean, in fact, that's a theme. Throughout this prayer, you're going to hear about the great mercies of God and the great sin of the people of God. Once again, it says, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night in light for, uh, to light for them the way in which they should go. God's still presence. I mean, presence is still there. He hasn't departed from them. He hasn't left them. He didn't forsake them. I mean, parents, this makes sense to you, right? I mean, our kids, and we know, they're the worst, right? I mean, moms and dads, you know how terrible your children are more than anybody else. I mean, you maybe lied to yourself a little bit. You certainly lied to other people. Those Christmas cards you put on, you put out, like they probably took five hours just to get one where people weren't punching each other. You know how bad they are and how bad you are. And yet you love your kids. Like you would never get to a point where your kids are like just, you're so frustrated with them and it's like, okay, okay, you, you ready? You want to play in traffic? Go. <laughs> like you would never do that. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> and neither will God. Here, here they commit this great blasphemy. Like they break the first and second commandment immediately. And what does God do? Like it says, the pillar... <laughs> The cloud by day, the fire by night did not depart them, but still continued to lead them. You gave them, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. I mean, you didn't even say you're going to bed without your dinner. Like he fed them. He clothed them. He gave them water to drink 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Remember, God's not disinterested. He's not disengaged. Even when we are far from, uh, from Him, He's not disinterested in us. Even when we sometimes, sometimes wish He would forget us, just like Put me behind your back. Don't think about me. Don't give me your attention. He does not give up on us. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon. 
and of the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of the heavens, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. While they were busy sinning against God, God was busy keeping His promises. Ones He had made to Abraham to give him a land to make him a great nation, to multiply his children like the stars of the heavens. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and subdued it before them and and the inhabitants of the land and the Canaanites and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." This is, of course, the conquest of the land under Joshua. And here it says it got so good, like they ended up getting cities that they didn't build for themselves. They drank from vineyards that they did not plant. They enjoyed olive trees and fruit trees that they did not plant or they just they just reached out and took the fruit. Like God did all of that to the point that they ate, they were filled, they became fat and then they delighted themselves in your great goodness. If the story ended there, it would be great. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Isn't that crazy? I mean, once again, the repetition of Ezra's prayer and just calling out this sin. He doesn't want you to miss it. I mean, this was willful. This was heinous sin on the people who bore the name of Yahweh. Like the history of Israel is the history of rebellion. In fact, the, the Bible is a sort of journey, journal of human failure. Like that's what it records over and over on every page, how much we blow it. It's only good for two chapters. And then it goes very, very wrong. And we think, I want to read a positive book. Well, then you want to read an unreal book. You want to, you want to read a book that does not match with reality, does not match with your own lived experience. We are broken. And we have to deal with that real failure. Therefore, it says, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. These are the judges who saved them from the hand of their enemies. God is not Santa Claus. He's not some doddering old grandpa who will let you get away with anything. Sin brings death. Rebellion brings judgment. And God will do whatever it takes to rescue us from the ultimate consequences of our sin. But after they had had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that 
They had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Note once again the very purposeful repetition in this prayer. Great sin meets God's greater mercies because He is a God ready to forgive. And you warned them in order to turn them back to their law, yet they acted presumptuously, once again arrogantly, and did not obey your commands, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey many years You bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets. This is the time of the kings, the united and divided kingdoms. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the land of the peoples of the lands. This is the exile. First to Assyria with the northern kingdom and then to Babylon with the southern kingdom. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Great sin meets greater mercies because he's a God ready to forgive. And then verse 32, now therefore our God. At that statement, Ezra has caught up, caught up to the last 23 sermons. Like at that statement, he has already covered Genesis 1 to Nehemiah 9. Now therefore our God, the great the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Like that's his way of saying, God, I know that our judgment is not enough. It's not equal to our rebellion, but let the cup of your wrath be empty. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Like the word righteous and the word faithfully there, that's not a contradiction. Like your discipline from the Lord is not in conflict with God's love. It's because of His love. Like when my kids were growing up, I would discipline my children. I would not discipline the other kids in the neighborhood because that would be weird because they weren't mine. I only disciplined the ones that bore my name and God does the same. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them in in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Like he's saying, these guys, like even in the midst of blessing after blessing after blessing, after all the promises that God met were kept and they knew it. It was so clear. They still didn't obey you. Like that's his way of saying, Ezra saying, listen, Lord, they didn't get it. But I do. God, they didn't get it, but, but we get it. And then he says this most humble of statements in this. He says, behold, 
We are slaves this day. I thought they were no longer in exile. I don't know, they're still in exile. They're still living in rebellion against God. They need to get themselves right or they will always be in spiritual exile. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the king whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. God, we brought this upon ourselves. And yet we know that this cannot be the kingdom that you promised. There has to be more. This can't be the end of our story. And because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On a sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. What's really interesting is Ezra doesn't end the prayer with an amen. He ends it with a choice. You have a choice to make. Choose this day whom you will serve. You have a choice to make. I set before you life and death blessing and curse, you have a choice to make. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Guys, you need to understand, failure doesn't have to be the end of your story. Believers, failure does not have to be the end of your story. Sin does not get the last word. Like, we need to hold on to that. We need to Believe that. We need to preach that truth to our own hearts. Failure doesn't have to be the end of your story. I know you've blown it because you're human. Because we live in a fallen world. But don't let that failure define you. Do what Israel was being called to do. Repent and choose to believe that there is a God who is anxious, ready to forgive and follow Him. You see, God meets our great sin with His greater mercies. That's the message of the Bible. Like that's the message that our great adventure team is going to be taken to backyard Bible clubs all throughout Hutto and Taylor and Georgetown and Pflugerville and Austin and Round Rock. Like on day two, Tuesday of the Bible clubs, our teenagers are going to get up in those Bible clubs and they're going to tell the overall story of the Bible this way. They're going to say, hey, let's pretend this hand is God. Like, this is God who made everything, just like we read about in the prayer of Ezra. God made everything, seen and unseen. Like, like angels and people, dogs and cats, the earth. The heavens, the stars, God spoke it all into existence. God is perfect and holy. And God made us. God made us so that we could be in a relationship with Him. But God made us so that like the angels, we would worship Him. But there's a problem, the problem that is repeated over and over and over and over and over again in this prayer to the point that it just wears you out rebellion, stiff-necked, arrogance. Our problem is sin. Let's say that this phone represents sin. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin separates us from God. 
God loves us. God hates sin and will never allow sin into his presence with pleasure. In fact, God is committed to once and for all punish all sin for eternity in hell. He will pour out his wrath on all sin. But God loves us, and so he sent his son, just like the father, perfectly perfect in every way. Like never had a wrong thought, never committed a sin, never did a wrong action, never failed to do what his father wanted him to do. And then on the cross, Jesus looked all the way into the past and all the way into the future, and he saw saw all the sins of all of those who had placed their trust in him. And on the cross, Jesus took our sin. And he became every liar the one who never spoke anything untrue. He became every murderer, the one who died for our sins. He became every adulterer. He became every all the pettiness and vileness in our hearts. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus died, and three days later he rose from the dead. And to receive that, all we have to do is place our trust in what He accomplished for us on the cross, turn from our sin, and turn to Him as our Savior and Lord. Don't don't you want your neighbors to hear that message this summer? Don't you want the children in your neighborhood to hear that message this summer? Be praying for our great adventure teams. Be praying about what your part will be in the Backyard Bible Clubs, drivers and hosts and people doing other things, just supporting in the shadows. We would love for you to be a part of that because, guys, the truth is my sin and your sin is great. But he is a God that's ready to forgive. I want my neighbors to know that. You know, this week, as I was studying this, like there were so many things in Nehemiah that I would have loved to have taught, so many things that just jumped off the page to me. And like one of the things that really stuck with me, there's a statement that he makes in chapter five that I've always loved. You have Nehemiah building this wall around Jerusalem to protect the people of the city. Like this is God's city and it needs a wall around it because God calls the righteous to live within those walls. And so God wants his people protected. And so he's up on the wall building it. And these guys, Tobiah and Sanballat, who are just jerks, they're bad news guys. They're enemies of God. They're trying to trick him to get him off the wall to come on down so that they can kill him. They can stop the work of rebuilding the wall because they don't want God's people protected. And then they send for him three times and he gives them the same message. He says, Tell him this, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I love that. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. And as I was reading it this week, I thought of what it says about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. It says that he suffered for us outside the gate, outside the wall. Like fast forward from this point 500 years and you have Jesus Lifted up, not on a wall, not building something, but on a cross, being mocked and ridiculed. And it's as if he says to the world, I'm doing a great work and I cannot, I will not come down. 
Guys, we have a God who is ready to forgive. Are you ready to be forgiven? Has God brought you to an end of your story so that you're ready to let Him write the next chapter? Are you still thinking that you have a better story? Let's pray. Father, I thank You that uh, though our sin is great, Your grace is greater. And though You promise to judge every sin, that Your wrath will be poured out on all sin, I thank You that for those who would simply repent of their sins, turn their back on them, and place their trust in Your Son and what He accomplished on the cross. Lord, You account His judgment, what Jesus received when He was punished for our sins. You account that to us. Lord, You take our sin and place it on Him, and You take his righteousness and place it on us. God, we are so undeserving of that. Thank you for your grace and mercy. And for anyone here who has not done that, Lord, I pray that they would come to a point even this morning where they place their trust in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.